Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is pediatric oncology, and our guest is Dr. Stephen Janik. Dr. Janik received his MD from Harvard Medical School and completed training in pediatrics, pediatric infectious diseases, and pediatric hematology oncology at Boston Children's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Afterwards, he joined the National Cancer Institute, where he is a senior investigator. He returned to the pediatric oncology branch, where his brother had been treated for a fatal rare type of pediatric cancer. His brother was diagnosed with cancer within days of his acceptance to medical school and died before the end of his first year, influencing his career choice. Welcome to the show, Dr. Janik. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on a wonderful show and talking with the two of you today. It's great to have you on. And uh, I, we always really um, like it when we have professional people like you are who have also had uh, a loss as profound as you had of your brother, right, Foster? Correct. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about when that was that Foster died? And you, sure. Yeah. This was 27 years ago, in the mm-hmm. 1980s, when he actually died in May 31st. Um, but uh, in 1979, I was actually living in France. My wife and I were in France, and I was spending the year there before going to medical school, uh, studying music, doing something totally non-medical. Ah. And um, I'd gotten accepted to medical school, and then within days of being accepted, to medical school, we got a message to call back home and to speak to my brother. We were in this tiny little town where we had to go to a payphone and put coins in and uh, be able to call and call back to speak to my parents and my brother. Um, and um, he, you know, was very honest and honorable and broke the news of the diagnosis that he had of this rare type of pediatric cancer called synovial cell sarcoma and that he was in the best of hands. So that was a sinus cancer? Uh, no, it's synovial cell. Oh, that's the lining of the joints. Oh, okay. And so it's a rare type of sarcoma. Mm-hmm. And it's usually seen in, in younger patients and young adults. He was actually 26 at the time uh-huh. uh, and uh, in working. And... Um, and he was, you know, very upbeat. And they, so he was your big brother? He was my my older brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, very, very accomplished, uh, just a wonderful character who had done all sorts of extraordinary things in his life. Uh, by, you know, he was one of the special assistants to Gerald Ford in the White House and had been a student radical two years before. Had just, you know, wow. he had done the whole gamut of things. He had the gift of, the wonderful gift of the gap. <laughs> and uh, he... Um, was, you know, being seen at, at the National Cancer Institute, uh, partly because my father, who has just retired, has been here at NIH for 50 years doing vaccine development work uh, in, in research. And so he went to his colleagues, and wonderful Dr. Stephen Rosenberg, the surgeon, saw him, and Dr. Phil Pizzo, the pediatric oncologist, and I think everybody was very upbeat, but knowing that it was a, you know, a major challenge ahead. And so he underwent series of chemotherapeutic uh, regimens and radiation therapy and some surgery. Um, and how long, over how long a period that was? Uh, that lasted basically one year. Uh-huh. He, he unfortunately... Yeah, did you come back? Uh, well, we came back uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, at the end of the of the expected time, we were, you know, strongly recommended to stay, that he was going to be all right, and, mm-hmm. you know, life needed to go on. I was going to say, and you would think at 26 that he was going to be all right. Absolutely. I mean, you would just assume, okay, he's only 26, they're going to cure this, and he's going to move on with his life. Absolutely, and he was the kind of person who made all sorts of remarkable things happen. So if there was anybody who could, you know, get a reservation at a restaurant or convince someone to do something or get a job by just sort of go doing something, you know, he had that wherewithal to make things happen. I mean, a real movie. So in other words, if it was just sheer will, he would have made, he would have stayed alive. Exactly. And um, so he started his therapy, and we came back, you know, I'd say a month later or so, and uh, my wife and I moved up to Boston and got settled in medical school and obviously visited him quite a bit. He was living in New York at that time, and we visited him in New York, and he came to see us in Boston, you know, quite a quite a number of trips back and forth, but it was unfortunately in the spring of uh, the next year that the disease came roaring back, and I was in the middle of the second semester of my uh, first year of medical school. And I've got to ask you, and you know I asked you this before the show started, how does one concentrate? Here you are in medical school in this intense study, and your brother died. How were you able to compartmentalize and to concentrate at that point? Well, I, I think that I, I certainly was able to, uh, but it was not easy. I mm-hmm. spent, the, obviously, the second semester quite uh, distracted, and I actually spent the last month at home when it was very clear that my brother was in a terminal phase and that there was nothing that could be done to stop the relentless progression of the cancer. Uh, so I returned home, and all the professors were very, very nice and sent the notes. And I actually took my exams in the National Library of Medicine. And, That's amazing. And in that world, you would think that people were sensitive to that. And in, indeed, you know, the, uh, the deans and the professors at the medical school were exquisitely sensitive to that. That doesn't mean that it was easy, uh, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that it was effortless. You know, it was... It was quite arduous and, and quite difficult to... Did you at any point, Stephen, feel like maybe I should take a, a semester off, or did you feel like it was more helpful for you to stay on course? I think it was more helpful to stay on course. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have that type A personality. If, right. if you don't have focus, then it would be even more difficult and painful. And so there I was with the one thing that I could step away Mm-hmm. from dealing with this, you know, day in and day out with my brother and his wife and my parents was, you know, to throw myself into my books and say, all right, now I've got to make something of my own life and turn this around so that hopefully this does not happen to others or it, we minimize the likelihood that this can happen to others or decrease the risk that this kind of outcome would come to others. So, You know, that's yeah. really interesting because we hear that, don't we, Heidi, how people um, set a new course and a mm-hmm. sense of determination, you being one, from having this kind of a loss. Right, and, and it, it really, you know, it, there's no question that it is defining in my, in my professional career. And I also, I also had a parallel sort of thing that uh, when I was in college, I had a very, very, uh, still alive, a very close friend, my closest friend, who's my roommate, who was a hemophiliac. Who, mm-hmm. So I lived for four years with him in college. and I've So he's had the disease where your blood doesn't clot properly exactly. and, you, and you bleed into your joints and whatever. Correct, and lots of chronic uh, complications of arthritis and headaches and things. And so I had, I had that experience in college, and, you know, and he's had a whole series of, 
problems related to therapies of, of hemophilia. And, you know, and is an extraordinarily strong and, and spiritual and remarkable person who is sort of a legend and unto himself. And so between, you know, seeing somebody overcome the odds who was told over and over, you, you'll never walk, you'll never do this, and he would, Bobby Massey would go ahead and do each of those things, trumping over each person. You could, you know, there was this very strong example of somebody who was going to will their way. Mm-hmm. And then the alternative was to see my brother, who had very similar personality and, and tendencies, but in this circumstance, despite the strongest of wills, the cancer had the better the, the better half, and unfortunately, he died from it. And it was, you know, a very strong contrast that certainly made me think and, you know, make me want to do whatever I can to make it all... Now, did Foster go downhill slowly, or was it a sudden death? Uh, he went downhill very, very quickly, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was very painful. Uh, and so he had a, it was physically very painful for him? Ex- very painful, and, uh-huh. and seeing the pain and the, the anguish of both he and then family members, it, uh, you know, I, I have to admit I was in that position of being a first-year medical student when you sort of have this sense of being limitless, like you're putting on the white coat and you're going to cure everybody and take care of everyone. Uh, you know, there were rescue fantasies of looking after my my wife, my wonderful wife Lizette, and my parents, mm-hmm. and, you know, my brother's wife and friends, etc. that sometimes were a little bit unrealistic. Now, do you think, um, does, does that come up for you about anything about how it is for siblings and, mm-hmm. and the fact that they don't have the right to grieve and they need to take care of everyone else? Is, and we're worried about our parents. Oh, absolutely. And, mm-hmm. you know, you spend your life, uh, I still do, 27 years later, wondering, you know, can I make up for the loss of my brother, uh, you know. Almost like you have to live a life for him as well as yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I think, you know, there's a... I'm sh- I know you two are very well aware of Elizabeth DeVito's a very mm-hmm. insightful book, The Empty Room, Surviving the Loss of Her Brother. Or sister. Yeah, her uh, brother was for our audience. Uh, she is on our show, uh, I think about a year and a half ago, so she's archived. Wonderful show. Her brother was, uh, if you remember, the TV made for movie, The Boy in the Bubble, that John Travolta played in. It was loosely based on her. Yeah, very loosely, but it's a wonderful book. Well, um, he was actually yeah. uh, on the same floor as my brother, and they uh, died within a week of each other. So, oh my goodness! So I I've known Elizabeth for a long time, both directly and through this very sort of profoundly important shared experience. Now, did you share it with her? Were you able to talk to her at the time? Did you no. know her? Did you talk no. about? Yeah, I, I knew who she was, but it was she was a younger. She was in high school, wasn't she? And you were correct. Yeah. When I came to work at the National Cancer Institute in 1991. We were reconnected by the wonderful physician who took care of my brother, a man named Dr. Phil Pizzo, who actually hired me down because he was the head of pediatric oncology mm-hmm. at the Cancer Institute. Mm-hmm. So I came to work on the very floor in the program for the man who had taken care of my brother. And, and it was this the floor that your brother had died on? Uh, he died on physically a different floor, but it was that service. He was treated wow. by the pediatricians. We were always much nicer and friendlier. So you were working in the same hospital where your brother was sick and, and then died? Absolutely. And and I, you know, I, I've got to pick up on that comment that you yeah. just made about pediatricians. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't pick that up quicker. <laughs> they're, they're much kinder than what was it you said. Okay. I, hopefully they're more in tune for sure. 
uh, the, you know, all you know, many physicians are, but as a in general, pediatricians are generally more optimistic and upbeat and friendlier. But that's that's just my own editorialization. <laughs> I didn't mean to get, take it. Back. That's all right. Well, I wanted to ask you when your brother was sick and dying. Here you've got a, a pretty probably fairly famous father, right? Correct. And uh, how was that uh, to see and your dad? And Elizabeth's father was famous as yeah, well. Yeah, and he was also a, in the oncology department. How was it to, I mean, how was that for you, you know, seeing your dad suffer? It was, it was, it was very difficult, and he internalized it, said very little for a long time, and threw himself back into his work with a tremendous, you know, vengeance and passion. Mm-hmm. But it was... Obviously, it was very difficult, and you know, to this day, to see him continue to go to work and you know, look out the window where he worked and see where my brother had died, you know, it was a very powerful reminder for him for years to come. And you know, he faced, so to speak, the music by saying, "I'm going to, you know, continue to do what I can to prevent diseases and you know, make the world a better place." Mm-hmm. So, investing that energy. How about your mom? Oh, my mother is, is truly a saint uh, and is carried on. And is but how was she right after? And how was how did because our audience is fairly new. How how was it for you to see her? And do you she have any was, thoughts? She was devastated, uh, uh, but she was very very concerned with everybody else and wanting mm-hmm. to take care of everyone. I mean, my mother truly, you know, you know, is able to see the good in everybody and everything. And, you know, this really tested her and I think, you know, was very troubling, obviously, and very painful. But she she kept, you know, she kept going. And I know she felt strongly about supporting my wife and myself. And then when my wife and I now have four kids, I mean, my mother has been the most wonderful communicator and sort of historian of, of Foster and his legends and his stories so that my kids all have this information and and know him very well in, in that regard. So his memory has really lived on, particularly through my mother's ability to wonderfully tell stories and engage about Foster and who and what he really represented. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it, Heidi, that I continuing bonds. And, and it's so important that we keep, like you said, Stephen, our children can know our brothers through the right. stories that family members tell. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that that's, you know, the, the, I think the very strong example is sort of the contrast between my mother and my father is that at different times they were able to do that. My father over time was able to talk more about and tell many humorous and wonderful stories about my late brother. But my mother from the very beginning felt a strong, uh, I think, compulsion to keep his memory alive. And it was through reliving stories, you know, going to his room and doing things and and keeping in contact. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget, we had an extraordinary memorial service, and my brother was very connected politically, and a number of people who were now Vice President of the United States, Secretary of Defense, when they were much younger, were friends, and they all spoke and were part of this. And when it was mm-hmm. over, my mother had arranged a um, a jazz combo to be there. So uh, this morning, you know, it was very upbeat. There was this wonderful jazz musician who was the basis for Ella Fitzgerald, Peter Bitts and company were there having a great time playing jazz and that was sort of emblematic of my mother wanted this to be upbeat uh-huh. and, and a celebration of Foster's life I'm, exactly. I'm amazed that Foster was only 26 and he, yet he lived such a full life absolutely the, the length of someone's life is not necessarily the best measure of their life uh-huh. and I think that in the world of pediatric oncology meeting and having 
honestly, as a physician, the privilege of knowing some of the most remarkable people I've ever met who may have only lived 10, 12, or 15, or 20 years, uh, but to see the richness of their appreciation and, more importantly, their pursuit of happiness and the good in life, it it, 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 you know, that's that's what's really incredible. Some of you know, some of the most remarkable people I've ever met are kids who only live ten or fourteen years. Uh, you know. On. Yeah, I, I think that's true, and because I worked in pediatrics before, and it's kind of amazing what happens. But one of the things that also happens with that is that these kids are so precious, and they are so taken care of by the family, uh, particularly you know if they've had. Uh, and a lot of times in oncology they have. They've had a year or two or whatever, and right. these families take such exquisite care of them that many of them live far beyond what anybody thinks they would live. And then when they die, they have, lot, they have a giant hole because they've been such right. dedicated caregivers. Absolutely, and they, and they support and they draw everybody with them, you know, in their pursuit of the good in life. And I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a long example, but I... I I'm the medical director of a camp that we run out of the National Cancer Institute called Camp Fantastic, where we take 100 kids who are on therapy or just coming off of therapy out to the wilds of Virginia, and we have a wonderful staff of uh, nurses and physicians as well as the program staff really run by Special Love, Inc., a wonderful organization. And we have these kids for one week at Camp Fantastic, and some of them are very, very sick. Mm -hmm. And every year, almost every year, we have a couple of kids who unfortunately their disease has come back with a vengeance and they're barely holding on, but they live to come to camp. And mm. they just are so happy in that environment to be with other kids who understand and appreciate and just resonate in many of those issues that the rest of us will only be able to appreciate and see at a distance but not experience. And then you know they live to be at camp and then uh, sadly if within a few weeks the emails come in that, you know, this child or that child has passed away. And you could just see that one of the things that kept them going was to get back to that very magical world that a camp like this created for kids with cancer. That's wonderful. And also, I think the anticipation of going to camp, um, you know, it's, it's not just being there. It's the whole thing of telling everybody that you're normal, I'm going to camp. Right, know, I'm doing like everybody that else. other kids do. Yeah, wonderful thing. Well, what happens... Um, after you get the message that they've died, do the camp people follow up with the families at all, send them notes, or what Absolutely. happens in that world? In, in that world, I mean, the Special Love Organization, which is a wonderful organization, you know, has a very strong philosophy that once you're in that fold, you're always in that fold, and there may be the terrible loss of the child, but the parents are brought back, and there's, you know, contacts and, you know, reaching out, whether it's emails, telephone calls, visits, events, uh, invitations, and the, the whole world of all the other people who are facing that, families as well as caregivers who are part of that, all just sort of step right around and try and envelop those, those well, families. Well, uh, where is that? Where would families, would it be from all over the United States? Sure. Or would it just well, be from one area? Or? Special Love really is focused on the, you know, the, the Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Southern Pennsylvania, sort of Baltimore, Washington corridor. Mm -hmm. But there are a number of other organizations very similar to this, you know, affiliated with camps and, and programs, you know, that are regionally based. This, you know, speciallove.org is a very wonderful, uh, uh, you know, website to go look at some of the resources and programs. But again, I think that, 
you know, there are, we know there are pockets and places all across this country and actually across the world that, that really step up and try and provide that kind of support and that opportunity for people to, to grieve and to share the joys of a loved one who they've lost. Right, right. And so you said it's for the, the healthy siblings also. Correct. And, and I think that oftentimes when you've had a sibling with a terminal illness, I know Elizabeth DeVita speaks to this a lot, there is so much energy and time that is spent with the sibling that is ill that often the, other, the surviving siblings during the illness and after are, are really overlooked and unacknowledged. Exactly, and 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 remember, many many of the children will have the feeling that it's their fault that mm-hmm. you know they had a fight two weeks before the child with cancer goes to the doctor, is diagnosed, is in the hospital, and then a seven-year-old may internalize it and say, "Well, it was my fault that they got cancer." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the the delicate mind of the sibling is a very very challenging and daunting uh, sort of entity to to help through all the stages. And that's why in the world of pediatric oncology, I think one never treats a patient. You treat the family unit. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are blended and all sorts of variations on families and extended families, whether they're blood or non-blood relatives, in terms of who provides the emotional, spiritual, and, you know, support. And now our audience is saying, how do we find this guy? Because <laughs> that wasn't my experience with my doctor. So what about people who've had bad experiences in the hospital. Do you have any thought? I mean, what should they do if they feel like their pediatrician blew it and they want to, they don't, you know, want to sue them or anything, but they want them to know. They don't want them to do it again. Do you have any suggestions for these folks out there? Well, I think that it's communicating back in in a constructive way. Because remember, the physicians are going to go on doing what they're doing. I mean, that's their task and they're dedicated and Physicians do make mistakes, and I certainly have made my share of mistakes in the past, and there's nothing I can do other than to feel bad and apologize that, you know, these things do occur. But what you hope is that you would be constructive in pointing out things that may not have been the best things and help people. Should I write a letter? Should I make an appointment? Right. I think that either of those, we certainly, I mean, I've had my experience of getting emails or letters or a comment or a telephone call that, you know, have been wake-up calls to learn or to realize things that I can do better next time. And I'd say to our audience out there, don't go over their heads either. Go directly right. to your doctor because that's really who you want to hear. And anyway. sometimes the doctors aren't aware until we point things out. And the same thing with, you know, nurses and all the allied, uh, you know, health care providers. I think that what it really comes down to is feeling a, a level of communication that really is based on trust, and that's where you have to be able to communicate. You know, it goes both ways. I think there's been a big shift in the last 20, 25 years in how doctors and nurses and patients interact with each other, and I think that the trust in the communication is more of a two-way street than it was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right, and particularly in cancer, you know. Uh, are, are, um, what are medical students being taught now, oh, as I far think, as grief and loss in family goes? I think I think medical school curricula are addressing this, but there's a big difference between the theoretical discussion and, and raising of consciousness and the actual experiences. Right, uh, and you, you learn from experience. I mean, that's what medical education is about is 
applying the knowledge that you get, and then it's those examples. You know, you never forget the first patient you see with this disease or this kind of issue. Those things stick out for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And your, your first patient that dies. And I'm always saying to everyone that's listening, all of the people that are out there that are bereaved, we have to teach the world how to be good grief support. Exactly. A lot of people are naturally know how to do that, but some others need us to teach them how to do that. Right. And and I love what, what you're saying, you two, because your siblings, um, you think of the parents always going forward. How about the siblings going forward and saying, you know, as a sibling, I think you could have been a little more sensitive in such and such or something like that. Right. And and I think that that's always a, a very hard thing to to really to bring up. But I think that if there's a, a good relationship between the medical staff and the, and the family unit, then you're able to communicate on a number of different issues. I'm, I will give you a what I would say is an unfortunate example. When my brother died, mm-hmm. one of the physicians who was part of the intensive care team came went to my father and then came to me and, so, and said that I was too emotional about this and that it would be deleterious in the future. Or <laughs> to your career. <laughs> to my career and to who I was if, if, if I showed that much emotion and wow. was that emotional. And, I, and to this day, I still am incredulous that somebody would say that. And I right. think... Times have changed. Yeah, uh, I, you know, when I was at the University of Rochester um, in 1983, 1984, I worked with some people who were very well known in the field of marriage and family and all that kind of thing. And we were still in that idea that you didn't reveal your your personal life at all. You know, you right. kept it a secret, or you didn't. If you, if I said my son died, you know, people would feel like that was way too much information. You know, correct. And I think that's changed a bit, hasn't it? Uh, I think very much so, uh, but again, you know there there are you know it's, it's sort of a fine line of where you become too personal, and I think right. uh, you know physicians most often and, and nurses come in contact with individuals at a certain point in their life, and they've had a very rich uh, life up to that point, and so you know with children it's that loss of perfection. You know the ten year old everything was fine, and then all of a sudden they're in a pediatric oncologist's office with a very scary diagnosis, the whole terrain shifts. Mm-hmm. But that child had 10 years of everybody worshiping and thinking of that child being perfect and having limitless potential. You know, and then now, wow, that's that notion is potentially shattered. And, and unfortunately, I still feel, Stephen, I've got to tell you that a lot of siblings, not all, but a lot of siblings still get the messages of be strong for your parents. Don't be too emotional. Your Correct. parents have gone through the the worst loss they can have suffered, the loss of a child, and you need to be strong for them and take don't cause them any more pain. Exactly, and, and I think that that is that is something you see play out over and over. You know, with families that you know, I've had the experience of families that I've taken care of and seen what happens. You know, some of the siblings turn around and are, go into medicine, or they go into you know the Peace Corps, or they say, I'm going to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do it on the oncology ward, but I'm now really, you know, I, I'm now fixed in my mind to do something to make this world a better place, mm-hmm. to, to make Look, up for that. Um, I want to ask you a question. What do you think doctors most need to know about dealing with families who've lost a child? Oh, that's a that's a like that's that an question. excellent question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they need. I, I think doctors uh, are best best need to understand that each circumstance is different. Now there are some common elements, 
but that it really is the sensitivities to each family constellation that is going to be important in in helping to make the next steps of you know whether you address certain questions of you know what happened, why did the death take place, how to you know to provide grief counseling, how to direct them. You know, there's no real formulaic way to do that. And mm-hmm. the stronger your basis of communication with that family prior to that, the, the greater the likelihood that you'll be able to, in, in essence, trust your intuitions to help them to see the things that need to be seen. And, and it, it really comes to, with the death of a child or an adult, one would hope that that would not be the last time that a primary care physician would be involved with that family. Right, and we we know that one of the things that's been happening, which I think is great, you know much more about it than I do, is that it used to be that kids, when they went in the hospital and then they went out to hospice care, it was a totally different staff when they went back in the hospital, and they're trying to make that more, a lot of states are trying to make, Absolutely. get uh, Medicare for so that the child can have the same health care providers. And I think there are wonderful programs. I know I was out not so long ago in Los Angeles, and I'm visiting down in Houston, where they they are making that transition as seamless as possible between uh, you know the inpatient care, the outpatient care, and then the uh, palliative care when that mode has to be invoked in the care of a particular right, child. Right, because that's that's been quite a uh, and, thing and for families. There's also on David Browning's yes uh, program, and he was on our we had him on our show as well. Where the Ipsy program? Do you know about yeah. that? Yes, I do. I'm aware. He's a wonderful man wonderful. and doing wonderful work, and and you know, kind of getting together the medical community with those that are grieving and talking in an open forum about how people can provide better services for people that are grieving. I want to say something about Foster. Just inspired to do that. Stephen's brother, Foster, who uh, died in 1979, is that right? 1980, yeah. Oh, 1989. Oh, I got it. 1980. Oh, 1980. Um, I just wanted to say something about continuing bonds and how I almost feel like I know Foster. I wish I'd known him, and he just sounds like a fun guy. And what I want to say is that those continuing bonds, all these you folks out there who have recently lost children, we know you're worried that the world will forget them and that you will forget them, and it just gets richer and richer, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and I was going to add to that, Mom, because I felt like that too during the show. And that Foster is really doing as much in his death as he did in his life through the work that his brother is doing with cancer. Right, and his spirit, mm-hmm. dominable and energetic. Yeah. Well, uh, when we went to break, um, Stephen, I was saying to you, what do parents need to know about their health care providers that have had children die? Uh, I think that uh, a key issue is to recognize that the health providers are human. And despite the veneer and the past exhortations and requirements that people be not show their emotions, there clearly is an emotional engagement. I I can't imagine and I don't know of any of my colleagues who have taken care of children and not had uh, some kind of a bond so that when they lost that child, they felt as if a part of them were going. And it's recognizing that the loss extends to all. Sometimes it's a very, very strong, you know, connection that may really then be able to be built upon and be the basis of the kinds of communications that are really, I think, essential to continue to talk about things and support people. Because to remember the, you know, the wonderful things of a of a of a wonderful child and you know the things that they did either in the hospital or that you know of, 
those things are those magical things that help to define those kids that you never forget. In fact, you might even, if you've had a wonderful experience, you might drop them a note. Exactly. I mean, that means a lot to get a little mm-hmm. card saying thank you for taking care of my child because they're, a lot of them are, you know, they haven't had the chance to grieve with anybody. Right. And that's a lovely thing. I had uh, some health care um, providers uh, while I was at an event, and they were saying that they really get torn about going to funerals, you know, and about getting involved because they can't do it. They work on uh, pediatric intensive care units, and they just can't can't do that because they it's just too much for them and they but they feel like they're deserting the families and I said you know what all you can do is do what you can do because you will desert them eventually anyway because you have to I mean you have to go on and keep working right but I, I think it's that personal recognition and the acknowledgement of that in both directions that helps to cement that bond that will be I think comforting to the family that their child did touch people. Right, and, and that, that we're all human and, and in it they together. Will, they will be remembered and they will live on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not being remembered. It's, I think, you know, what you were talking about a minute ago, it's living on so that others would know and be moved and say, this was a good person. This person touched someone else. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there are degrees of separation, clearly, but you, you want it, you want to capitalize on that, not shunt them off and cut them off. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you might, as years go on, I'm not saying the first year or whatever, you might want to volunteer or do something or, you know, be involved in a run or setting In, in memory up of, your, of your sibling or yeah. child. Right. And, but, and letting your, the health care provider at the hospital know that you, what you're doing, you know. And, but, I, but I think that one of the important things is that most people, uh, what I would say to families and loved ones, is do that when you're ready. There's mm-hmm. no there's no formula that you do it, you know, six months later or six years later. Different people come to that point of comfort of recognizing and doing honor to the person they love, you know, and sort of guide your instincts and not what you think is the formula or the process that somebody else thinks you should do. Absolutely. And sometimes it's strangely enough that people feel like other people are doing it too early. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> that you shouldn't be doing that yet. <laughs> And, uh, you know, do as, uh, do it, like Stephen said, do what you feel comfortable right. with. Right. And don't worry about what other people are thinking. To thine yeah. own self be true. You know, really, that's, Shakespeare was right. Right. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do, too, because you feel like there's a certain amount of judgment mm-hmm. on what you do. If you're doing two things too early, if you're staying in bed too long, if you're not getting back to work, if you are going to work too early. I mean, it's just amazing the judgments that right. get put on people. And you, the, the thing you have to be prepared for are those unexpected moments. I mean, I'll tell a very, you know, painful story as I went back and started working at the National Cancer Institute and seeing children in the clinics and wards. But I didn't go into the intensive care unit for a number of months uh, when I came back. And the first time I walked in there, and that was the place where my brother had died, as prepared as I thought I was, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very upsetting experience just to walk in. And I was going in for work to see a patient and to take care of something. And it, you know, it took me a minute or two to really gather my thoughts, you know, and, and walk back in a second time and say, all right, I know why I'm here. I now need to overcome this. I got to do what's right. You know, I got to make this better for this other person and then, you know, sort of grip my teeth and go forward. But it was a very unsuspecting moment that sort of crept up and was obviously very painful and uh, very emotional. Well, thank you for that comment because it, it just comes to get you every so often, doesn't it, Heidi? Absolutely. Grief, grief can overwhelm us, and we sometimes don't know when that's going to happen. Yep. 
Well, it's almost time for us to close our show. Uh, do you have, Stephen, do you have a comment that you'd like to leave uh, with our audience before we close? Uh, I, I, I think the, the most important thing is for families and loved ones who are going through the grieving process is to trust their intuition, to look within themselves and then look to others as opposed to thinking that they have to look to others for the cues as to what to do. You know, you really have to follow what resonates and what makes sense to you in terms of the steps that you go through and the things that you do to honor the memory and carry on and put your life back together to go on to honor that person. Well, thank you so much for that comment. And it's time to close our show now, and we want to uh, thank Dr. Stephen Chanuk. And talk Thanks, about Stephen. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 